Hi, I'm Joanna Chaundy and you're listening to Series 2 of Baggy Jeans, the podcast, where I chat to the female singers that made the 90s R&B era so unforgettable. We take a nostalgic look back at the music, the industry, the videos and the fashion. So whether you're a newbie to this genre or just want to come and reminisce, tune in to Baggy Jeans, where I unpick the seams of 90s R&B. My guest this week is a woman whose voice wowed Mariah Carey so much that she became Mariah's backing singer for many years. She later penned songs for major labels such as Bad Boy before forging her own successful solo career. She's best known for hits such as Friend of Mine and for featuring on the unforgettable Heartbreak Hotel with Whitney Houston. I'm speaking, of course, of the formidable Kelly Price. So when was the last time you were in London, Kelly? Way too long. <laughs> it's, it's been way too long and the pandemic has only made it worse. London, I can honestly say, is one of the uh, places, England overall, but specifically London, that when I was brand new, uh, it, let, let's talk about before I was writing and singing, you know, like with, with Notorious B.I.G. and that kind of thing. I had a fan base in England based on being a background singer for Mariah Carey. People recognized me when I came there with her um, because they loved her so much that they loved everything about her. So um, I have had a long-standing love affair with London. It actually was the first trip that I ever took with Mariah as her background singer. No I way. Once pregnant with my son and traveled to London with Mariah to do a press run, a PR run, and we recorded Top of the Pops. Now, how throwback is that? Oh my gosh. Well, if you've done Top of the Pops, you've, you've made it. <laughs> it's so funny because everyone I've interviewed, um, when I mention Top of the Pops, if they've been on it, it's like their claim to fame in the UK. <laughs> yeah, we actually filmed the same day that Lady Diana Ross filmed. Wow. They nice. did both episodes in the same day. So it was, needless to say, to a 19-year-old Kelly Price, six months pregnant. Yeah, that was an epic day that went down in history of my life. Well, speaking of London, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start a little bit at the beginning of your career. Now, t- tell everyone the link you have to George Michael, because this was a big step into the music industry for you wasn't it and he's London London's own George Michael so how did that come about? George Michael was my first professional gig um it is how I became connected to Mariah Carey um as we all know if we are George Michael fans and anybody that's not is living on another planet um (laughs) like he he came he was doing this particular tour in 1992 where he was covering just certain cities in the United States And he wanted a group of singers to learn these new arrangements of several of his songs because he's always been a fan of R&B, soul, gospel music. And I speak of him as if it's the present because that's kind of the way I feel. And so he had these arrangements where the sound needed to be bigger live. And so someone got some choir from somewhere And he did two nights back to back at Madison Square Garden. On the first night, it was this choir. They just hired this choir. I don't know who the choir was, Um, but he was not happy. He was not happy. He went back and he said, find me someone else. And long story short, 
I had a friend who was trying to be, you know, a producer and I used to come and sing all his demos for free because he needed a singer and he was trying to sell beats and trying to sell tracks and um, did like a live corporate gig. And someone from Sony was there and remembered him and reached out to him and was like, can you pull together a group of singers same day for George Michael? I got the call at 12 noon and he was like, are you available? I'm like, yeah, I'm not doing anything today. He was like, good. I need you to meet me at Madison Square Garden. You need to be there no later than three o'clock. We started rehearsing probably about four or five. The show started. How old were you at this point? How old were you? I am 18. And how does an 18 year old deal with that? Because I've heard you say before, and I guess this this speaks true, you come from a a gospel church background. So I guess that was your rehearsal for the industry. That prepped you, didn't it? It did. Because in a Pentecostal, anybody that has grown up with a Black Pentecostal experience, literally anything can happen in service. My mother was the choir director, and there could be a switch up. We had rehearsal three, four times a week for Sunday service. But in the midst of a mood shift or whatever in the service, they can decide we're going to do this instead. And it could be something that we've never even rehearsed and we have to be able to catch on. And mm. that's what life was like for me my entire time growing up. I had to be ready to shift on a moment's notice and do something that was completely unplanned and unrehearsed if that's what the service called for. And in the Pentecostal, anybody that understands the Pentecostal Black church, they call that a move of the spirit. So instead of us doing what we plan to do, we're doing what God wants us to do in the moment. And so we rehearsed all of this over here and it all goes out the window. And instead what we're gonna do is what the moment calls for. And that was almost every Sunday. (laughs) And so how do you learn? What did they make you learn for that show then? Like how many tracks did you have to learn? We did Father Figure. We did, and and my memory is probably not gonna be the best right now. We sang four or five songs with him that night, but they all were these different arrangements that he had these ideas for to have a larger sound. So when you think about George's music, um, I would probably have to go back through the list and say, oh yeah, it was that one, it was that one, one," because we're literally talking 30 years ago now. Um, But I, I think Father Figure sticks out in my head because it is one of my favorites of his. Do you, um, have any specific, do you have any specific memories of him from that show at Madison Square Garden? We did not have a whole lot of interaction with him. So um, he had at that time singing background for him. There was Lynn and the Paris sisters. Those were his background singers in 1992. And okay. so they were the ones who came into the room and taught this ensemble of singers that came in five hours, four hours before the show. Um, And they still had to get dressed and get made up and stuff. So we were in rehearsal for maybe about an hour and a half, two hours. And they had to be on stage at the top of the show. We made entrance and exit, entrance and exit, depending on where they were in the show and which song was happening. But we had just under two hours of rehearsal and then they had to go get dressed. Um, We were instructed to come dressed in all black. And that wow. was it. I, sh- I didn't even know who I was singing for. Oh, seriously? Yeah. When my, he, he, he couldn't, I, you know, I guess he couldn't say, but he was just like, it's a gig. It's at the garden. And can you be there? I'm like, yeah. He's like, okay, we're all black. So I showed up in all black and we rehearsed for just under two hours. And um, the Paris sisters and Lynn Mabry, um, who I still keep in touch with today. She's actually a really good friend. We met again many years later 
after I became Kelly Price, the solo artist. And Lynn Mabry and the Paris sisters taught us his songs with the new arrangements. And it ugh, life changed after that. How did your first gig at Madison Square Garden, then every gig after that, I guess, if it was anything less than like however many thousand people, you're like, nah, I've done Madison Square Garden. So, so you know. this is the thing. I'm going to be honest with you. I really, really, it was a big deal and it was huge. I think that the way my life, again, saying growing up in a black Pentecostal church and knowing that at any moment they can say, nope, we're not going to do this. This is what we're going to do. That was one thing that helped me prepare for it. But also my, my, my family being so deeply rooted in the church. My grandfather was, a past, was my pastor. He was a bishop. Um, he had pastors who he pastored and lots of churches that sat underneath him. So when it was convention time, when it was conference time, I could easily be in a venue. They, when they had conference and, and convocation in New York City, they used Madison Square Garden. So right. if I was singing in the choir at the time, how we would be packed to the rafters. So I could go from singing in a storefront church or in a street meeting on the corner with a megaphone to being in a Madison Square Garden. And the way I was taught was, it's not about where you are, it's what you do. And so it doesn't matter. If I'm singing to an audience of one, they're gonna get the same energy that an audience of 25,000 is gonna get because it's right. that experience that they get to take away. And that's how I was taught. So it's not that it's any lesser. My thought process is whoever is here in this moment deserves to get the best from me that I can give. So um, it's the first time I've actually ever thought of it when you put it that way. What does compare when that's your first gig? And it's true. But the follow up to it was I then, as a result, because now the people know about us at Sony because George Michael was signed to Columbia here in the States where a young Mariah Carey was signed and she's nominated for Grammys and she's performing at the Grammys and she wants a choir behind her. And so the same group that was recommended for George Michael, this same executive is like, we just use this group of singers for George. They would be perfect. So they call my friend again and they need more people at this point because she specifically wants 40 people in the choir. Um, but that's how I ended up meeting her again, pregnant, 18 and how I met her out of the other 39 singers that were there is that on a lunch break when everybody went to go eat I was nauseous and could not so I stayed back in the rehearsal hall and I was at the piano with my friend who was playing and singing when she walked in in the room and she heard me so it's a real right time right place situation absolutely, absolutely. that is that is incredible so so what absolutely. did she say to you when when she heard you sing she didn't she was very shy Oh, really? um, when I realized that she could hear me, I stopped because I felt like I didn't want anybody to think that I was trying to make that moment happen. You know what I mean? That's not what that was about. Um, I, I, I sing all day, every day, naturally. Sometimes when I go on voice rest, I have to remind myself, you can't walk around the house listening to the music or you're going to sing. Um, when, when I realized that she was walking in the door and that she could hear me, I stopped singing immediately and walked away from the piano. And Trey Lorenz, who was singing background for her at the time, she said to him, go over there and talk to her and see if you can get her to sing again. Wow. And did so you sing came over and struck up a conversation with me? And he was like, what was that song you were singing? I was like, oh, it was because I was hell bent on not singing because she's now in the room. 
Yeah. And I didn't want anybody to think that I was trying to be discovered because I really wasn't. And I, I guess Mariah must have been quite young at the time as well, right? She was. Yeah. There's only a two year difference between us. So I'm 18 and she's she wasn't 20 yet because our birthdays hadn't happened yet. They're also days apart. Speaking of Mariah Carey, now now you then became her backing singer. I did. What amazes me and blows my mind still is the amount of Mariah songs that Kelly Price is singing backing vocals for. And people, some people don't know this. tracks that people would know that that you that you do backing for always be my baby definitely fantasy um legendary mtv unplugged it was a brand new series and i don't think people understand that was my second gig with her i was invited to come do that as my first job with her as a background singer being hired directly by her outside of the grammy gig which was my first gig with her and um even if you go back and look at it we have a moment where we were done and the audience wanted more and we hadn't rehearsed anything. And on the spot, she was like, well, what do I do? So she says to Walter Afanasiev, who was her music director at the time on the piano, let's just do a little bit of this. And so she starts singing and she looks back at us. And again, because I'm used to just jumping in and being ready to move and shift because of the way I was raised as the daughter of the music director in my grandfather's church, um, we fell right in. And I think that probably if she wasn't already hooked, it was hook, line, and sinker at that point. Like we, we literally fell right in and we were in harmony and we were in step and we didn't miss a beat. And when you go back and watch it again, you'll see it was not rehearsed. It was not planned. She just started singing it and we fell in line. And what kind of things did you learn from Mariah? And I'm guessing what kind of things did Mariah learn from you? I feel like our exchange as creatives I think she became less fearful of tapping into the power of her soulful voice. We loved her breathy tones. We loved her airy tones. We loved her octaves and her range. Um, I I learned how to use better my breathy and airy tones because in church, we're just taught to project. Sing, be powerful, project, and move the people. But singing for her and having to be able to shadow her um, and record her music and then also duplicate that live, I had to learn how to go from ah, to and it'd be just as effective and just as powerful and the power of a whisper um, being greater than the power of a belt. So I think we were great for each other. Yeah, she must have learned a lot from you as well, being from a gospel background, because a lot of her background singing is gospel influenced, isn't it? She loved it. She loved it. She she would ask me, who do you listen to? There are some people, obviously, that she listened to already. But um, I used to talk to her about singers like Vanessa Bell Armstrong. Everybody I grew up on. I, mm-hmm. I grew up on the Winans. I grew up on the Clark sisters, obviously. Vanessa Bell Armstrong. Um, I talked to her about Daryl Coley. The first time I played Daryl Coley for her, she was like, he's a freak of nature. I was like, I know, right? Um, so yeah, yeah, lots of exchanges. But I learned some, I learned how to, because in church, again, they want you to sing with power. They want you to be loud and just move the people. 
and be certain that no matter how large the building is, the person on the last row can hear you just as well as the person on the first row. Um, I think the most important thing that I learned from her were those intimate little nuances and the power of the whisper and the power of a softer tone and what that can do um, sometimes more, more effectively than giving big voice. Is that and difficult to do? Could you, could you do that already, the whispery, breathy tone? or was I, you... I knew that I could do it, but it was not something that was in demand singing in church. Yeah. Nobody wanted you to whisper when you were singing in church. They wanted you yeah. to be loud. So it wasn't something that I had practiced to perfection, but in order to sing with her, you know, even if, if she's singing, treating me kind, you know, even, even with the ooze, they're, they're mellow, they're sweet. There's nothing, you know, for us, everything was chorus, choir. Um, it was Mahalia. You know what I mean? It was Aretha. It was that. Right. Um, it, it, it wasn't the quiet tones. It wasn't being with her taught me how to merge all of those different textures and nuances. I already had the ability to do it. I just wasn't using it because I did all of my singing in church and they don't care about that at church. They want you to, they want you to, ugh. <laughs> at so least guess, not when I was coming along exactly but I guess after you you were with Mariah that led you into then do your own solo stuff Did, what, what what was the point when you decided okay I want to be a solo artist now I want to move from the back to the front I actually was the first artist signed to Crave Records Mariah signed me are you um, serious I was the first artist. I just, the record never came out. I was the first artist signed to Crave Records. She signed me. She signed the group Blue Denim. And Allure, right? And I believe it was Allure as well. Yeah. Um, but I never put out a record. I was on the road with her and wow. never put a record out. And when the contract, when it came time to either renew the contract or extend it or do a new one, I decided that I wanted to kind of expand myself because I was already writing and trying to write songs for other people. And it would have been a bit of a conflict because I was still actually touring with her as a background singer when I was signed to her. Okay. So um, it, it wouldn't have worked. It wouldn't have worked because she was in the studio all the time. Like even when she wasn't traveling, she's a creative. She would be in the studio on days when she didn't have to be just to get ideas out. And sometimes we know as creatives that those ideas turn into like mega hits. So she, I, I would be in the studio with her on days when it wasn't even really a plan. It would just be, let's see what happens today. Right. And so um, I made the decision and I remember crying because I didn't want to leave, but I made the decision to leave because I said, if I don't walk away, I'll never, I, I like it here. I love it here. I love my job, but I wanted to write for other people. I wanted to. I wanted to step into the position of, of, of being a producer and, um, and then the love for it outside of being signed to Crave Records. They were like, what do we do with you? Like you, you're too, you, you need to lose a lot of weight. Like the, the, the three things that I heard most about myself is that I was too fat. I was too black and I was too loud. Wow. By the labels. Yes. Wow. Because yes. I was going to ask you what hurdles you faced as a woman in the 90s in the music industry. So you've just kind of answered that question, really. Yeah, so yeah. How I did, did not you... fit the model. I yeah. did not fit the model. So I was writing for everybody. I was singing on everybody's records in the studio. but And, and all of the executives loved me. But they yeah. were like, I mean, shoot a video and then what? 
Because and they were vocal you, about it. Because you sing on, you sing on uh, Biggie's More Money, More Problems, and Mace Feels So Good, and The Locks. You've done work with multiple hip hop artists. You're on so many different tracks, and. Yeah. So how did it come then, Kelly, for you to then have the Soul of the Woman album released on Ireland? Because you were with the label with one of the Isleys, right? Is it yes, with Jack? Ronald Isley. Right. Writing for him. He came through. Uh, Puff, uh, Sean Puff Combs mm-hmm. um, was uh, engaged to produce a song for him. And I was there in the studio writing a song for Aaliyah that day. This oh, is when wow. I was doing a lot of writing and he was producing something for Aaliyah. And I was there to write a song for Aaliyah that day. And I had finished and I was getting ready to leave. And he saw me leaving and he was like, well, I need you to stay. And I was like, well, what's going on? He said, I have a song. Um, I'm doing something with Ronald Isley. And I'm like, oh, that's really cool. I was like, so when do you need it done? He was like, I need it done now. I was like, okay, now? He said, yeah, he's leaving the hotel. He's on his way to the studio now. Oh, wow. You're a last minute girl, Kelly. You are a real last minute girl. (laughs) I am looking at him like, you have to be kidding. But in that moment, is it, do you let, like being afraid of not being able to produce make you say, no, I can't do it. Or do you go against everything and say, okay. And your stomach is in knots, but you go in and you write the song. And I say, thank God for a lot of divine intervention um, and for the creative gift that he'd given me that I knew how to exercise and New York City traffic. So it ended up taking him a lot longer to get to the studio <laughs> than he would have because he was staying right in Manhattan, but it took him almost an hour to get to the studio because of traffic. And by the time he got to the studio, the song was written and I had already started laying background vocals on it. Wow. And so that's how we met. And uh, Puffy actually told me, I said, okay, well, I'll leave. He said, no, I want you to produce his vocals. I need you to cut his vocals. I was like, I can't cut vocals on Ronald Isley. Like, he's Ronald Isley. And he looked at me and he said, well, that's the reason why I can't cut vocals on Ronald Isley because he's Ronald Isley and I can't (laughs) sing. I can't tell a man that sings how to sing. You have to do it. So I ended up staying and being his vocal producer that day. And he just stopped the session. He stopped the session and he was like, why aren't you making records? Wow. Ronald Isley said that to you. Yeah, he stopped the session. He was like, what are you doing? I'm like, I'm here with you. (laughs) And he was like, why are you not making your own records? I said, look at me. They don't sign people that look like me. And he was like, you're insane. You're out of your mind. Are you crazy? And so there began the courting. So then how did you end up with Island then? How did that happen? Because he did did his label deal with Island. That's where that record came out. And so I then became his artist at Island Records. Yes. Because I remember you came out towards the end of the 90s with Soul of a Woman. Soul of a Woman came out in 1998. Amidst yep. all of the things, even, you know, I, I was in a room one day when the marketing manager at Island Black Records was on the phone with another marketing manager from another major label whose name I will not say at this time. Um, but Maya and I were scheduled to release our debuts on the exact same day. Of course, she was. was, Oh, yeah. And uh, we, I had a meeting, I had a a marketing, I had a meeting that day. So I was already in the room and this executive took the call and put it on the speaker. She had no idea what this person on the other line was going to say. 
But he said, I want to make you a bet. She was like, what are you talking about? He said, you know how we do. I want to make you, I, I'm, I bet you, y'all did good, congratulations. Congratulations, y'all did good. But I bet you that my skinny, little light-skinned girl will way outsell your big fat girl with the, with, with the incredible voice in first week sales. Whoa. What do you want to put on it? And her eyes got big and she picked the phone up and took him off speakerphone. But I heard it. I heard so you put I some heard money on like that, Kelly. Did you put some money on that though? I, you, I, I don't know if she did put money on it, but you if you won that. look at the records, I had a great first week. And that is no slam against Maya. No, I'm no, simply telling not. that story because in the time that I came up, yeah. that's what I was dealing with. Yeah. You know, absolutely. now we have people that will call you out and tell you it's politically incorrect, but I dealt with stuff like that absolutely. on a regular basis. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. That's shocking. But then you have completely different voices as well, which means we do. We're not we're not the same artists. Yeah, absolutely. There's no comparison. No. But yeah, yeah. I that, and that is a true story that when I do do my life story for television. Wow, yeah, that needs that needs to be in the book. It needs it, it, it will be in the book and on 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 film when we tell my life story. We we have to include that because it says a lot. It says a, lot. No, says a lot. But the yeah. we didn't have social media back then. No. So what we have is this logo with my initials and these glittered out um Gucci-esque glasses because everybody that knew me personally knew that yeah. I loved eyewear. And um, unless you saw me in a live performance somewhere, we didn't have camera phones or anything. You didn't know what I looked like. And we had the number one record in the country on Billboard with no video and most of the country having never seen me before. I kind and of so, feel, though, that, that ha- like it, 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 they wouldn't market someone who was heavy, like you say, blah, blah, blah. It wasn't the done thing. But I think for you, my personal opinion is because you're you, – you're such an amazing singer and there's no arguing about it that well, what can people say do you know what I mean like people can't argue if you can't sing and yeah. you don't look the part there's no package there but you could sing like Aretha can sing you know it, it, it there's no arguing about it that's I what just, I loved about London because London yeah. never cared I loved yeah, coming no to England I loved coming to London London yeah. never cared all they cared about is that it was a great song and that the yeah. lyrics made sense and that when I got up to sing it live, it sounded just as good as, or if not better, than it did on the record. Well, and, I remember America I was very different at that time. Yeah. It was very much so image yeah. driven. And they would take someone who had no ability musically and just place them with like great choreographers and give them great hair and makeup and lights and shoot incredible videos and give them amazing wardrobe. And it didn't matter. You put them with a super producer. And all you know is, oh my God, Jermaine Dupree produced the song. Oh my God, Puff Daddy produced the song. Oh my God, Timbaland produced the song. And it becomes less about the artist, but they're creating this superhuman figure that, who basically, without all of these other elements, wouldn't be able to do what right. they actually are. But there's no longevity with those artists, though. There, there isn't. There isn't. It was hard to live through, though. Again, I it bet. was hard to live through because who do you tell when the people that actually make the decisions are saying, yeah, we know she's great, but look at her. So how do you cope with things like that? Because back in the 90s, you know, now it's different. If people were suffering with depression or mental health issues or struggling in some way, it wasn't a done thing to speak to people back then, whereas now it is. So yeah. how do you cope with that kind of, it's almost bullying in a way, isn't it? So how yeah. do you cope with that? 
I think that having a childhood where I grew up not having a lot of money and we were poor and we were homeless, you know, a lot and on welfare and I didn't wear the nicest clothes and, you know, we lived in the projects. And so there was already a lot of those different things in different areas of my life all throughout my life. So I learned how to wear the face and push through it. So when it came to this um, and when it came to that in terms of being in the industry, um, I wore the face and I pushed through it. And whenever I grabbed the microphone, I reminded them why I was standing there with the microphone. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, you could drop the mic at the end as well. Because you know? <laughs> when you yeah. first came out in London, I remember my friends calling me going, oh my God, have you heard this new artist? Kelly Price, Kelly Price. And I was like, who? She goes, Listen to the lyrics, listen to the lyrics as she play yeah. friend of mine, just blue in London, just blue. having a video originally didn't we, it? yeah there was no video we were number one without a video See, and then when we I shot the video it. when we shot the video and did the remix and released it it went back to number one and that was the first time that had ever been done on the billboard charts ever by the girl that they said would never sell a record once people good saw for it you, Kel. good for you so pretty <laughs> proud of that but i want to talk to you about the the video it was the remix version you did the video for wasn't it with yes. uh ronald isley and yes R. Kelly and yes I'm really interested to know it was such an amazing remix and such a great video and um Clyde Williams directed the video very glossy and beautiful amazing first of all I need to ask you how many times did they have to keep doing your running mascara in the video to make it look like you were crying so the makeup artist had this stuff that um my, I was so tired. My acting skills to create tears at a point we had shot in it so much. I was like, I don't have any more tears, y'all. Like, I can't. I'm, I'm tired. Like, if I cry right now, it's not because I want to go to sleep. Because <laughs> it took us two days, two, three days. It was a three-day shoot. Wow, that's long. It was a three-day shoot. Hype made a movie. Like, I wish I could see all of the extra footage. Like, that would be a minute. You know what? Hype. I need to call him. I would love to see all of the extra footage because it was like a two and a half, three day shoot in Manhattan. And they had this stuff. It was almost like it, it looked like ground charcoal. But when they put it up underneath my eyes, it made my eyes get teary, like the way onions Ooh. makes some people cry. But it burned just a little bit. So it, it had a bit of a sting to it. So it made me cry, but I had the real cry face because the actual thing that they put there, it was stinging. I was like, (laughs) so yeah, they were forced tears, but they were real. (laughs) They look real. Cause I was like, how is she crying for this long in this video, man? Yeah, My acting skills were probably the first five or six takes. The last 15. Oh my gosh, I love that video. And I also yeah. love how always in the 90s, and you're queen of the cheating songs, Kelly, you really are, but like you were throwing the clothes in the bag and this, that, and the other, and it's so 90s. I love it. I love it. Um, queen of the cheating So I am, thank you. I'm going to put that on a t-shirt. 
You are the queen of the cheating songs. <laughs> but you so are. And then obviously Heartbreak Hotel, another yes. cheating song featuring yeah. Kelly Price and the amazing and that was Whitney Whitney's Houston. idea. As a result of listening to she heard the song on the radio when she heard it, she was she well, first of all, she told me she said I almost crashed into the medium because I started screaming, Who is that bitch? Wow. She said, I was on the I-95 Jersey Turnpike. And that's my like, yes. track. This same. And so she was Whitney Houston. So she made a call and she was like, find out who this girl is. Find her. So when was the first time you met Whitney then? Gosh, the crazy thing is her birthday and the day that Soul of a Woman came out were like a day apart. And I had my album release party on the same night that she was having her birthday party in Manhattan. So I couldn't come to her birthday party and she couldn't come to my album release party because they were happening at two different venues at the same time. I want to say the first time I met her was when I came to the house to record the song. Whitney and Faith Evans did it because I think you and Faith have very similar sounding voices. You're both she very handpicked us. She was already a Faith fan. She had already been yeah. communicating with Faith. I was the newbie in the situation. I knew Faith from a whole different set of circumstances. Number one, me being over at Bad Boy and writing over there and singing on everything. But that was not the first time I met Faith. I met Faith in a church in Brooklyn when we were both in our early teens. She used to come from Jersey and sing on these musical programs at these churches. And my sister and I used to do the same. Um, and I remember we were all in the same church at the same time, one Sunday night. And my sister and I were there because we had to sing. And she was there. And I just remember sitting her towards, she was seated towards the back of the church. And they called her up to sing. And I remembered hearing about this girl from Jersey who could sing her face off that would come every now and then and sing at these musical programs that they had at churches. And that was the first time I met her. And I didn't meet her again until I saw her in the studio at Bad Boy one day when she was there working on her album. And I was there writing for somebody else. It's amazing how it all comes around. Full Very circle. full circle moments. Yeah. Very full yeah. circle moments. And the yeah. video for Heartbreak Hotel is, is stunning as well. Was that, was that yeah. shot in Miami? It was shot in Miami. Yeah. It was. Yes. How was it shooting that? Because I think Kevin, Kevin Bray did the directing for that video, right? It was insane because we got to Miami. The night we got to Miami, it was 88 degrees outside. And by the next morning, it was 30 something degrees. They had a freak ice storm, like a cold front. It was January or February of 1999. And a cold front came in off the Atlantic Ocean. And it was like 30 something degrees and it was freezing. And we were supposed to be on the beach all day shooting. So. So the director had PA scrambling, trying to find every Home Depot, every Lowe's, trying to buy up every heater they can find because we were scheduled to shoot on the beach <laughs> and it was 37 degrees outside. Oh my goodness. The day after we landed. That's And the nuts. first day of shooting. Yeah. Whitney lived in Miami. For, she had a house in Miami, right? She had a place there. She yeah, had a place yeah. there. Yeah. They flew, they flew Faith and I in with our teams for the video. 
And did you all just click on set? It was just fun. Oh, yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, we had already, we had like, like it was already a sisterhood. There's actually, I keep saying, I guess whenever the family wants to do it, they'll release the footage, but they filmed the entire day that we recorded. She, when she had the compound in New Jersey, she had a house, another little house um, on the property. And I'm saying little because in comparison to the main house, it was little, but it was probably about 3000 square feet and it had bedrooms and or guest suites rather but it also had a full recording studio in there. Mm. And that's where we recorded the song on her property. Wow. So <laughs> we had already, we had already, you know, spending time together and, and there's footage somewhere. I keep saying somebody has that footage. You know, it's interesting you say that because um, I spoke to Deborah Cox a couple of weeks ago mm-hmm. and she was saying when, when she recorded a single with Whitney, nothing was recorded she didn't even have any pictures and she so regrets not having any anything except the memory yes. so yeah, yeah. so where script, different cast exactly exactly I recorded the demo for that song did you I did that's amazing that's amazing it was done by Shep Crawford and he and I wrote yes. a lot together so when he when he wanted to do he needed two different voices so he was like KP can I get you to, uh, I'm trying to get this to Whitney and with you and I'm not sure. Oh, that's amazing. And mm-hmm. I also heard, is it true that Heartbreak Hotel was originally for TLC? I do not know that. Now that's actually the first time I've heard it. Yeah, originally. But I well, do it, know that we were in competition with each other at the Billboard Awards that year for best collaborative uh, effort. <laughs> oh, seriously. That's so yeah. <laughs> we performed in Vegas. Um, yeah. And we we were in all the same categories oh my God, um, with that's that crazy. song. Yeah. That's crazy. What's been your favorite uh, video to shoot in your career? Um, if we take away the epic nature of having a very first video that Hype Williams, number one, is the director of, and it takes three days to shoot, um, you should have told me because I got to throw a treadmill off of the roof of a building and destroy a car and what? break glass and when you go back to you like it was the it was so fun like we we I took a, a so the video was I mean the song itself was talking about like you're looking at me you don't appreciate me you think I'm too fat you think I'm too this or whatever and you're wasting my time like you should have told me you should have told me I wasn't small enough you should have told me I wouldn't have wasted my time right so you see me dragging this treadmill through the apartment and I take it to the balcony of this penthouse apartment And I actually, so I had three treadmills so that they could make sure that they got the shot. There was a camera inside of the car and there were cameras from every angle shooting upward at the car on me. And they had to, after I threw the first one, the first one almost took me over the side of the balcony with it. So they had to put, they had to put a person on the ground so they'd be out of camera sight and put like a black blanket over them. And they braced my ankles so that when I threw the other two treadmills over to get the other shots, <laughs> that I wouldn't <laughs> go over the side of the building. Kelly, why a treadmill? Why not something a bit lighter? Why a treadmill? The treadmill to make the statement about you don't have the right to tell me that I'm too fat. Ah, if that's, if that's like what, you. and I'm not, I'm not going to exercise to be the, the size and the shape that you uh-huh, want me to be. Gotcha. If I'm going to do it, I'm going to do it for me, but I'm not going to kill myself working out on this treadmill every day, only for you to keep looking at the skinny girl and looking at me like I'm crazy. 
Right. Got you. Yeah. Got you. Oh, that sounds fun, actually. So you, you just should break, I like literally the most fun I've ever had. I got to break mirrors. I threw, I took the workout dumbbells. My I destroyed my workout room. <laughs> I threw the treadmill away. I, I broke the mirrors inside of the workout room using the dumbbells and the freeway. Like it was, oh my God, it was therapeutic. So I had the first break room. I hey, you got a lot of workouts now. in your videos. You had a lot of workouts. I did. Throwing of the clothes and the treadmills and everything else. You were throwing everything, mate. Yes. Yes. Yep. I mean, I have to celebrate Soul of a Woman as an album because, you know, we're talking about the 90s here. And and what I really loved about it was that even though we were coming to the end of the 90s and the sound of R&B was kind of changing a little bit, a bit of auto tune was coming in and not. But you always kept it with that organic sound, you know, with the gospel, the R&B. It was always that's R&B. That's what it should sound like. Yeah, I, you know, it was the thing that made me me. And to veer away from that would have been a mistake, I think. I, not I think, I'm certain it would have been a mistake. It was the thing that made me unique. It was the thing that made me special. And in a world that said that I wasn't pretty enough or skinny enough, when I opened my mouth, all of that went away. Mm, mm. And And you said that the pre-Grammy party that you had when Whitney made her last public appearance before she passed away. I mean, you must treasure that footage. It was, it it stung at first for a long time. I think probably just in the last couple of years, I've gotten to a point where I can look at it and it doesn't sting anymore. Yeah. Um, I I view it as a gift. I feel like I was given a divine gift because what I didn't know and what the world didn't know, perhaps what she didn't know is that she wouldn't be with us less than 30 hours after that. And I shared that moment and we were together the whole night in our conversations. And, and even the moment on stage, she, she was never scheduled to be on the stage. That was all her. She wanted to come up and, you know, what she, the things that she whispered in my ear on the stage, the conversations that we had off on the side of the stage while all of the performances were happening. I really now look at it as a gift. I had one last time with my sister and my friend when none of us knew that the world was getting ready to lose her. And it all looked so natural. Like you say, she wasn't planned to come on the stage. She looked like she was having such a good time. Everyone was singing. It was a real R&B focused night. It was, it was a real beautiful thing really. So it's, it's lovely. You've got that footage. Yes. Yes. And who have been your favorite producers to work with during the nineties, Kelly? I'm really intrigued. Oh, gosh. Who do you click with really well? I think I clicked with everybody that I've worked with. Cause I actually, being somebody who wrote so much, I didn't work with anyone that I didn't want to work with. Yeah. When it was time for me to, to do Kelly, I handpicked everybody that I worked with. Yeah. Because I knew what the sound was that I wanted to produce. I knew, I knew, I knew. Yeah. I knew. Yeah. I never wanted anybody to listen and go, why is she trying to sound like, why is she trying to? So it was always important to me that when people heard, when, when they heard my music, that they understood that I was still being authentically Kelly. And they're, they're, that actually is the reason why I ended up parting ways with Def Jam. There was a shift in the staff. There was a shift in the leadership. And I was being pressured right. to make music that sounded more like other artists. And I wouldn't do it. Yeah. So the end was 
to, you know, let's just respectfully part ways. And it wasn't a refusal to grow. It was a refusal to be disingenuous with Absolutely. myself. Absolutely. And I think that's what fans appreciate about you is you are in a field of your own. You will always be Kelly Price with that incredible powerhouse voice. Yes. And you need to get your butt over to London. What's going on with that? Um, hello, somebody bring me over to London. I need to do a concert. Hello, yes, Wembley. Do. We haven't been there in a while. We haven't been to Wembley in a while. I'd love to come back. Absolutely. We'll try and when make they, all, all of you, when you see this, the promoters and the buyers, they'll be seeing this when you put this up. I have not been to Wembley in a while. It would be really nice. Right. <laughs> please get Miss Price over to London, please. Thank you very much. And um, so just- I can do see proper. Exactly. I, I do. I find places. I promise. I swear to God, I became an afternoon tea snob after my first trip to London in 1992. <laughs> and there are only a very few places that get it right, like all the way right here in the United States. And yeah. I just get frustrated and I'm like, this is BS. Like, this is not the way this is supposed to be. Yeah. I need my scones. I need my clotted cream. I need my cucumber sandwiches. What the hell? What are y'all doing? I am such a tea snob. Okay, when you come over, when you come over, Kelly, we'll go to Claridge's. We'll have our yeah. We have to. I need the little tuna sandwiches. I want my little cucumber sandwich. I want my little egg sandwich. I want my I I want my scones. I want my clotted cream. I need the preserves. I need the Earl Grey. I need all of it. I I got all of it. I got you. I promise. I promise. Thank you. That was the queen of the cheating songs, Kelly Price. That's it for Series 2 of the Baggy Jeans podcast. Join me, Joanna Chaundy, for Series 3, where together with more inspirational women, I unpick the seams of Naughty's R&B.